as that's happening, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get a Bible to you. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. And when you get that, go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. We're just working through this Gospel week after week. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, Last week, Jesus was finishing explaining the parable of the sower. Very important parable. He says, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand all the others? And so we finished up Jesus' explanation of that in chapter 4. And now he's going to expand on some of that truth that we heard last week. We pick up in verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? And not on a stand for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus goes on in verse 24. He says, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you and still more will be added to you for to the one who has more will be given. Jesus says, and from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. And stop there. What you find in the short passage is there's three main parts to what Jesus is teaching here that we need to pay attention to. They're going to be on the screen. The first one is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in the first two verses. That's what that's talking about. He builds onto that. And the second point is the right response to that revelation of Christ. That's verses 23 and 24. And then we're just breaking it down. The third part is the reward and the consequence if one does rightly respond to the revelation of Jesus or does not rightly respond to the revelation of Jesus. One, two, three. Simple passage. But there is a lot here for us to take. Each of us in this room responded to the revelation of Jesus Christ when hearing the gospel. You responded a certain way at 17 or at 7 or at 27, you responded to hearing the gospel, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of us responded a certain way. You had other friends who didn't respond the way you did at that particular age. And I asked the question, where are they now with the Lord? See, the whole thing is built on the response. But it's not just individuals that Jesus has in mind in these verses right here. He has entire cultures in mind. He has nations. He has entire generations, even churches and whole denominations in mind with what he's saying in these few verses. What he has in mind is how they respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ. What it says in verses 25 is that. There's a reward in Jesus' mind or a consequence, one or the other. Take a look, verse 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. That's the reward. Then he gives a warning. He says, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Two options, option A, option B. No third option, no alternative. He doesn't mention that. We know from last week's passage, it's either insiders or outsiders for Jesus. It's either good soil or bad soil. Here, it's either reward or consequence in his mind, one or the other. Other, option A or B, no C. 
You see, we've been, let me be frank, duped in this country by this postmodern lunacy called your truth. You heard of this? Your truth. That your truth is just as valid as this other person's totally contradictory truth. You've heard of this, right? There's no longer any such thing as the truth because everyone has their own truth, which is such a farce. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. There's objective truth. One truth concerning a situation. And what we need to do is align ourselves with what's true, not come up with this monopoly of, well, I have my truth and you have your truth. And can't we just both be right about this one truth? That is not how the Bible thinks. That is not how Jesus thinks. And therefore, that's not how God Almighty thinks or has set up the world. Do you see in verse 25? Is one or the other. For to the one who has, Jesus says, more will be given. For the one who has not, option B, even what he has will be taken away. Even what he has will be taken from him, taken away. When I read that verse, I can't help but think about the church in Europe. That warning from Jesus. Even, what does it say? The second part. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You see, the church in Europe used to be the breadbasket for Christianity. They used to be uh, the place that was growing the faith of Jesus Christ for the world. They were sending out missionaries. They were, they were growing the greatest of theologians. They, they led the entire Reformation. And look at the church in Europe now. It's an endangered species. It's a lost relic of the past. The church in Europe in many ways is a ruin. Their churches are now museums of what once was. They're on life support, any critical scholar will tell you. And why is that the case? It's right here in the passage. It's, be, it's partly because they mishandled the revelation of Jesus Christ. The church in Europe played with it. They tweaked it. They diluted it. They changed it to make it palatable to a modern palate. And because of that, Jesus says, second part of the last verse in 25, from the one who has not, has not what? The true revelation of Jesus. Even what he has will be taken away from him. You see this phenomenon in whole denominations. Those that mishandle the truth of the authority of Christ, they, they, they start to decline over time. They become close to nothing over time. What they have is taken away from them. Look at the mess that the Methodist church is in right now in this nation. There's been decline, there's been factions, and now there's about to be, a, you might not know this, there's about to be a massive split in the Methodist church in this nation. The church that was responsible in many ways for the great awakening in this nation. They once had and they were given more, as Jesus says at the beginning of the verse. But as they began to tweak and mishandle the truth of the gospel and decline in faction, and now they're up against a major split. Why? 
Because in this case, they mishandle the revelation of Christ's authority in Scripture over several major things, sexuality just being one of them. That's the big debate there. Look what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, pay attention to what you hear. What what a great call for today's world. Because we hear a lot, don't we? I mean, you can hear a lot of things on this. You can get caught up and swept away in a lot of things on this. He's saying, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, Jesus says. I've been sitting on these surveys that have been done recently. It's these statistics with how uh, we're handling, handling the revelation of Christ in the American church at large. And, I, and, I, and I've been kind of waiting on the right passage to share these, and that, that happens to be today. And I think these statistics are going to shock you. There was recently published um, really groundbreaking public research on the state of belief in American churches. The state of belief. Fascinating research. And it's not all the spectrum of Christians that I want to share with you this morning, but this morning I want to share the findings of simply what they call evangelical Christians. Now, I'm not talking about evangelical in the political sense, but evangelical in the belief sense. It's the state of belief, not politics. And an evangelical Christian typically takes the scripture seriously, takes salvation in Christ alone seriously, takes evangelism seriously. So there's serious biblical Christians at their best. And so I want to look at how we so-called biblical Christians in America are handling the faith of Christ. This research comes from Ligonier Ministries. And if we can put it on the screen, it's a lot, but we're going to go through it. Almost three out of four, that's 73%, agree with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Wrong. Jesus was not created. John 1.1. 1, 1. The word was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus was never created. He's not like me and you. So the first part is about our incorrect theology in the scriptures. Almost one third, 29% agree with the statement that God learns. And God adapts to different circumstances while only 43% disagree. God does not learn. God is all knowing. All reality, all informational systems, the internet, all those different data of information are but a drop in the infinite mind of God. God does not learn or grow. He's not like us. Isaiah 40. And yet, many serious Bible Christians in America believe that. More than half, 55%, believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. I call that Star Wars theology. The force is not a force. It's God, personal being. Goes on, more than half, 55% agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. That's the very, very first point of the gospel. You read Romans, the first three chapters are making the claim that we're not just good by nature, that sin has so corroded humanity, and that's not true. For all have sinned and gone astray from God. There's none righteous, no, not one. None seek after God. This is Romans 3. And yet, more than half the American church disagrees with that. This is where it gets scary for me. I don't know what's going to come over the next century with this one. More than half, 56%, agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 56%. 
of Bible-believing Christians in this nation believe that? What is going to happen to the future of the Christ local church if that's true? COVID exacerbated that. I mean, COVID was strange when we came to church. I mean, strange all around. I mean, I'm trying to do church on Zoom, and it's terrible. That was, that was horrible, right? What's even stranger is how whole populations of people that were serious followers of Christ in his local church just, just abandoned it altogether. Where are they now? What are they doing now? It goes on, more than one in four, 46, more than one in four, 46% disagree that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. 46%. That should scare us for the future of the church in this nation. 46%. It's like this. I love talking to Christians who think they don't need the local church. It's like this. Imagine in the early church in the book of Acts. Everyone is coming to faith in Jesus for the first time. You know, Acts 2, they were all together and they're devoted to apostles' teaching, breaking all those things. Imagine there are Christians being in the time of the apostles saying, Hey, Peter, I'm all about this Jesus thing. I believe you. But just don't expect me to be a part of the whole local church thing uh, each week. I'm just not going to. I believe in Jesus. I'm following him. But I'm going to kind of do my own thing. I'm not going to be a part of the local church that God's blossoming here. It's, it's unthinkable. And yet as 21st century Christians, it says that 46% think that that's fine. Two more, more than half, 58% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. I respond to that, and what is the point of Jesus being the Savior of the world? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You only come to the Father through me. And lastly, this is the scariest one. Almost half, 44%, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Does that shock anyone besides me? You're allowed to like nod or say anything. 44% of Bible-believing Christians in America, they don't think Jesus was God. What is happening? It's clear. Jesus talks about it in the passage. We're mishandling the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's a warning. There's a promise, verse 25. To the one who has that, more will be given as they go deeper in the truth of the gospel. But from the one who has not, Jesus says, even what he has will be taken away. This needs to get solved for our children, our children's children. For the sake of the church now and the future American church. And I just, I I look at those and I just ask the question, what are we going to have a century from now? What's going to be left? The whole Christian enterprise rises and falls on how we ongoingly handle the revelation of Jesus. Period. And that revelation is where Jesus starts in the passage. That's what he first starts talking about. Verse 21. Let's go a little deeper into it. Jesus says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Simple question. You have a light to light up the room. You don't hide it. You put it where it can be of use. Who's the lamp referring to? The lamp is Christ. He is the light. John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Jesus is the lamp here. And the purpose of the lamp is not to be hidden, but to be lifted up so everyone can see. He goes on verse 22. It's just simple logic he's working through. He says, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. We have to understand what Jesus is saying here is this. that at this point in the gospel story, remember, we're in chapter four. We got a lot to get through. What he's saying here, reality is that Jesus was the light of the world, but he was a bit hidden at this point. You know, the stories where Jesus will exercise a demon out of out of a person and they'll be delivered. They'll come to believe in him and they'll say, shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone on the Messiah. The scholars call it the, the messianic secret. He was staying hidden. For a time to accomplish his purpose. And so at this point in the gospel story, he's a bit hidden, but he's saying in due time, look at the verse, verse 22, he will become manifest or he will later in the verse come to light. And you see that chiefly at Jesus' death and even more at his resurrection when it comes to light who he really is. He is not just the son of Joseph in Nazareth. He's the son of God from heaven. And you see this right at the cross. I love this story. Mark 15, I believe we have it on the screen. Right at the cross with the centurion, the soldier that is responsible for the assassination of Christ. Look what happens. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, that's the soldier there, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. He's being revealed, secret, exposed, light coming to light, manifest. They're seeing who he is. And what you find in the New Testament is that in the book of Acts, when the church starts, Jesus is very much put up on the lampstand through the preaching of the gospel, going to all the nations. He says, you'll be my witnesses all over the world. They're just putting up the lampstand of Christ. That light eventually came penetrating through all the centuries and hit you at some point in your story. For me, it was at 17. The light, the lamp of Christ up on the stand, the church faithfully thinking they should gather and they should think Jesus is God and all those biblical things. They, they held the light up for us. The churches in the past held up the lampstand of Christ so that you one day could come to the light. What will happen if we don't in our generation hold up the lampstand for the future? Those who have, more light will be given. Those who have not, what they have will even be taken away, he says. And so the lampstand's been put up for the last two millennia, but there will come a day in the not-so-distant future when there'll be an even fuller revelation of Christ. Where the dark room of this world will become even more lit up by the resurrected and exalted Jesus. What am I referring to when I'm talking about the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation talks about, what's the word? Revelation. When Jesus is going to be even more revealed to the world. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. That is supposed to happen. No one knows when but the Father. But there's a date set in the mind of God. When Jesus will return to earth in some kind of form or fashion. As I was studying this week, I just thought to myself, how often do I think about that? That Jesus is, how are they going to cover that on the news? How are the government's going to handle that? 
How's it going to disrupt economic systems? How's it going to disrupt media coverage? How's it going to disrupt work? The pandemic gave us some clue as to what can happen when things don't work out or things come into question. What's it going to be like when Christ returns? The book of Revelation, again, revealing more of Christ. It reads this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. On this particular day that Jesus speaks of, all will know who Jesus Christ is. Is. There will be no more hiddenness. There will be no veil. There will be no longer any kind of debate. He is who he is. Second Thessalonians says it this way. This is a sobering passage. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, there's the word again, from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. No ambiguity, no doubt, no debate, right? All that will remain on that day is the absolute fact of Christ. He is simply there. Absolute reality with which we reckon. All of humanity will either bow down to the rock of Christ or be bashed up against his reality. This day, according to scripture and the mouth of Jesus, he talked about it more than any biblical character, will come. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know what form, fashion, model, or system, but in some kind of way. In, in the same way, I, I love this helps me with the second coming. In the same way, God figured out a way for the Son of God to come to humanity the first time. He said, Mary, born, 100% God, 100% human. In that little village out there in Nazareth in the Roman Empire. And born on this particular night, in this particular way, into abject poverty, obscure, hidden. And yet one day, the revelation of him will rise. And all will be revealed. And they will know who he is and where he is from. What I'm speaking of in Revelation is the final day of illumination. When all that's left is Christ. That day will come. Just as certain as Jesus' first coming to earth in the first century, so will his second coming be. And as I asked myself this week, I ask you, do we think about that fact of the future? The Bible is clear. Those that recognize him now will be recognized by him later. Secondly, those who reject him now will be rejected by him later. It doesn't force anyone to be received by him. If they reject him, that's fine. He will reject them. 
He says this clearly in John chapter 12. He says, the one who rejects me, these are the words of Jesus, and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus' whole consciousness lived in mind of that last day. He says in Matthew 10, whatever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. The whole issue surrounds how one handles the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, even the demons cried out that he is the son of God. Even the the, the demonic cry out. They know they've been past the veil. They've been in the realms of the spirit. They know who is Lord. And even they cry out, he is the son of God. But the question we have to ask is, will you and will I, will our children, will our churches cry out the truth of who he is? There is nothing more important in this human life or the life of a nation than how they respond to the revelation of Jesus. Nothing more important. Are we praying for our children? Are we praying for our spouses? Are you praying for yourself? Are we praying for our churches? How did I wake up a Christian this morning? Because God is at work in my life. It's not because I'm more intelligent or I'm a higher spiritual IQ. I woke up a Christian this morning because the grace of God that's in my life. Am I praying that over my children? Am I praying that over the churches? The Bible stakes everything on that single issue. Jesus elaborates more on this important response in the passage. Look at verse 23. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying this is really important. And he, said, he repeats himself. Verse 24, pay attention to what you hear, he says. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. What's he talking about? Well, he's telling his followers that the level to which they pay attention to what he's teaching them will be the level at which they receive more from his revelation. If they grasp what Jesus is saying and go deeper and deeper into it, they will get more and more from it. Right? Pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use to hear, to know, to seek. It will be measured back to you and still more will be added to you is what he says right there in verse 24. But... If they remain at a superficial level, a casual hearing, they will likely lose the revelation of Christ. They started in revelation, but they didn't end there. We saw that in the parable of the soils. You know precious people in your life whose faith story is panning out that exact way. It started here. But through life circumstance, through crisis, through just distraction. Their faith story is beginning to pan out more like this. They're not going deeper and further. More is not being added to them. Because the measure that they use to seek the faith will be measured back to them, Jesus says. You want more, Jesus says, I'll take you into more. You don't, you're going to wither. 
They're going to wither away. It's not what I want for you, but that's what will happen. The Bible calls this holding fast to their confession. Holding fast to your, I love that language. It's like, it's like holding on to it. You, you know, um, when I think of these water sports, right? When you're trying to get up on that wakeboard, right? You are gripping on to that, what, what was that called? The handle? It's got to be better than that. But you're holding on to that rope, right? Or even better, when you're on the, uh, the raft and you've got that crazy guy thinks he can do all these loops and you're just hanging on for dear life and you're being whipped around, right? You're holding fast, the New Testament says, to the confession that you've made. Let me show it to you. It's worth turning to. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews is a latter letter in the New Testament. Flip there with me. You can use table of contents if you need to. But go to Hebrews 10. It's an important passage that talks about this. Holding fast the confession. He picks up in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, right, in the faith. But all the more as you see the day, look at that language, the day that we were talking about, drawing near. Hold fast. And then get together and encourage one another to hold fast. I know the times that I've gone through seasons of crisis where, where I was losing a grip on my faith. One of the most encouraging things was just to sit there on a Sunday morning and look over at someone else. I didn't even know them, but I saw them every week on Sunday. Look over at them and realize, I ain't crazy because they're here too. They're holding fast to the revelation of Jesus. Sometimes it can get like that. The Bible knows that. Jesus knows that. He knows what the walk of faith looks like. He's lived it. He came and lived it. So he says there's going to be times we need to hold fast and you need to get together. Don't neglect being together, it says in verse 25. But encourage one another and all the more encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. You see, there's this whole doctrine in the scriptures called perseverance. This is what I want to end talking about. Perseverance. Where we persevere in the faith. That's the language it used. That's the doctrine. Perseverance. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, look at what he's saying here. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept, I've kept the faith, he says. He's held fast. 1 Corinthians 16 says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. There's a standing firm. Why do you need to stand firm? We're going to play a game where I try and push you over, you know? What do you need to do? You need to stand firm in the faith. With the doctrine of perseverance, here's the reality. Some do. Some do persevere in the faith. But the Bible is clear that some do not. 1 Timothy 1, 19. Look at the language again. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, what? Holding faith and a good conscience. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. 
What you need to hear this morning is this. Perseverance by God's grace pumping into you, making you a Christian in the morning, is everything in the life of a Christian. Persevering is everything. And this is what Jesus speaks to in the final verse. This is where we'll bring it to a close. Oh, we've got to go back. That's Hebrews. So back to Mark 4. He speaks to this perseverance. Jesus says, to the one who has, to the one who's held fast. Bring in all the other verses we just read. One who's held fast their confession. Jesus makes a promise. It's option A. More will be given to you. Option B. From the one who has not, has not what? Held fast. Even what he has, what's left, will be taken away. And so this leads to an all-important question. The single, I think, most important question we could ask this morning, and it's this. How does one persevere in the faith? You could name names of those that have not. I can name names. How does one persevere in the faith? Here's the answer. You persevere by pursuit. You persevere by pursuit. The Bible likens a believer's relationship to Christ, the church to Christ, as a marriage. How does your marriage persevere in all seasons of life? It's by a continual pursuit of one another. No pursuit, the fire dwindles, the fire snuffs out, the fire dies. Any old couple will tell you that you have to pursue in all seasons. You persevere in the faith by pursuing knowing Christ. You press on, as the Bible says, to know the Lord. Love what Paul says in Philippians 3. This is like his life summation. I really hope when I'm at the end of my life, I can actually mean these words. Not just believe in them, but actually experience them. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's his highest treasure. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There's pursuit in that language and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. He goes on, look for the pursuit language that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, Paul says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a pursuit that causes Paul to persevere. Let me ask you this one thing. I want you to answer it honestly before the Lord. Is there any pursuit about your life right now? Is there any pursuit about your life? Are you pursuing something that is all-consuming and all-important? Christ. If you are, by the grace he supplies, every morning you wake up a Christian. 
Here's what I can promise you. This is what the Bible promises. You you will not be disappointed in this life or the next. You will not be disappointed if you press on to know the Lord on that last day. You will not be rejected, but you will be received because you pursued the revelation of Jesus. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, you are the one that will inherit the kingdom of God forever into eternity. There's nothing more important than that. You wanted to know him in this life and because of it, he will know you. He will know your name in the next life. He will say, welcome into the kingdom of my father. It's yours. It says that, 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 we will, that, that we're co-heirs with Christ in Romans 8. That what he inherits in the new reality of eternity where the kingdom of God is supreme and the new heavens and the new earth that the Bible talks about. It says that you're a co-heir with Christ. That all that is his is yours if by grace you press on to know the Lord. You will not be disappointed. You will not be rejected. He says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Jesus goes on, he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But not you. Not you who persevere by pursuit. You will grow like an oak tree in this life in your revelation and love of Jesus every passing year. Verse 25, more will be given to you. You'll just grow up in the soil of grace to be this old, elderly, ancient tree of faith in this life. And your children will come and live under the shade of the oak tree that God has built your strong, held fast confession and life in God. My dad knows God. My mom knows God. She prays for me. She sets an example for me. She reads the scriptures with me. You will press on to know the Lord and make the Lord known. That is the ambition of your life. Let me make it clear. You're not a banker who is a Christian pursuing the Lord, but a Christian pursuing the Lord who banks. You see the order there? You're not a teacher who is a Christian pursuing the Lord, but a Christian pursuing the Lord who happens to teach. That is the set ambition of your life. And that's a life not wasted. That's a life living with eternity in mind. Let me just end by encouraging you. Almighty God lives in you to make that kind of life out of you. God is so for you that he said, I'm going to come and live inside John to cause him to persevere in pursuit and to grow this oak tree of faith in his life that his children will come and take shade under. God is so amazingly for you that he's come to live in you. He's more for you than you are for yourself. He wants to blossom your life in righteousness.
That's a promise. May it be so. Amen. I invite Will and our team back to the stage. We're going to give you some time to press on to know the Lord. Don't, don't waste worship. There's no point in wasting worship. Just let's not do that. These next few moments aren't about you. They're about Him. They're not about the song. I like it or don't like it. The style. I like it or don't like it. This is a divine moment. At Grace Athens, we don't want to just talk about God, but we want to meet with God. And so take this moment. Do it in your way. You don't have to lift your hand. You don't have to get on your knees. You don't have to sing loud. Do it in your way. But make a connection with the Lord this morning. Ask this question. What's the one thing you're speaking to me this morning, God, through that message? What's the one thing you want me to leave with? What am I supposed to take into Monday from the word that was preached?